Welcome to the Gateway Church Podcast. We're so glad you're here. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. This weekend we are continuing our series entitled Unbeatable Hope. And it has been a blast so far. If you weren't here last weekend... You need to go back and watch last week's message. It it is essential to really understand what we're talking about. And we're in the middle of a three-part sermon in this series entitled How Hope Grows. Now, why are we talking about how hope grows? Here's why. Because the word hopeless is one of the most used words in a fallen world. Okay? And, And we were created to be hope. Full, okay? So the ground between hopeless and hopeful, the gap can be closed when hope grows. And it is really easy for hope to grow in your life no matter what's going on. And last week, we started this three-part sermon with a message on understanding what God is like. The first step in hope growing in your life is understanding that God is Father, This weekend, part two of How Hope Grows is entitled Understanding What Jesus Did. All right, so understanding what God is like. This week, understanding what Jesus did. And if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. We'll start there, and then I want you to put a marker in Hebrews chapter 10. All right, Genesis chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to jump right into this. But let me just say, kind of throw out a disclaimer, because I don't want any emails this week from people saying one specific thing, okay? I only have less than 40 minutes, supposedly, to talk about what Jesus did, okay? So it is literally impossible to cover even a a, a little of what Jesus did on the earth in that kind of time frame. So can we all agree that this message is not meant to be comprehensive or exhaustive when we talk about what Jesus did, okay? So do not send me an email saying, Jesus did so much more, but I only have 40 minutes, okay? So I've got to really boil it down to what is the most important thing he did on this earth, all right? So let's jump right into this. Before we get to kind of the meat of this message, in points three and four, we really need to lay the groundwork, the foundation for the motive, the why behind what Jesus came to do in this earth, all right? So here's point number one, Jesus was bothered by the barrier. Jesus was bothered by the barrier. Now, we're gonna read in Genesis chapter three what happens after the fall. So let's just kind of have context here. If you don't know Genesis three, it's okay. Uh, Adam and Eve have just sinned. All right, and what we're going to read is the impact of their sin, okay? Genesis 3, starting in verse uh, 22, if you have your Bible, read it with me. If you don't, just read on the screen and follow along, all right? Then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us. This is the Father talking to the Son and the Holy Spirit. They have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit, from the tree of life and eat it. Then they will live forever. Okay, everybody look up, look at me. All right, just pause for a moment. The problem wasn't that they would live forever. Remember, that, that's 
one of the highest goals is to live forever, okay? That, that wasn't the problem. The problem was they had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the problem really was that they would live forever with the knowledge of good and evil and all that evil brings as an impact due to Adam and Eve's sin, okay? So here, here's what you need to understand. God is saying, this was not what I intended, I wanted to live forever with them and them to live forever with me, but because they have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if they reach out and they eat that fruit that would cause them to live forever, this would be a catastrophe. All right, so remember that as we read verse 23. So the Lord God banished Adam and Eve from the garden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the garden of Eden. And he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, that kind of sounds serious, doesn't it? He, he banishes them, kicks them out of his manifest presence. Now, you, you may be here or watching this online and, and you would say, uh, well, I don't know Jesus personally. I don't know God personally, but this sounds really harsh. God kicked them out of the garden. How can you say you love somebody if you kick them out of your presence, here's what you need to remember, okay? A perfectly pure God cannot be in the presence of impurity, okay? Now, you're going to see he can be in the presence of the impure if the impure have been made pure. Another way to say it, if the unclean have been made clean, okay? That's a little preview of coming attractions here in point number three and four, okay? But here's where we are. Most people, especially believers, think that the biggest problem on the earth is sin. The biggest problem is not sin. The greatest problem man has ever known is not sin, but separation from God. It's the effect or impact of sin that is really the big problem. Now, I want to give you a different perspective of, of maybe how I think it kind of went down in the garden. All right, please don't in any way, shape, or form think I'm adding to scripture. I'm just kind of letting my imagination go. I just wonder if it went something like this. Because remember, the Father is talking to the Son and the Holy Spirit. They've become like us. He doesn't just say like me. He is having a conversation with the rest of the Trinity, okay? So I just wonder if Jesus was watching everything like a hawk that was going down in the garden. And I just wonder, after man was created, I wonder if Jesus ever caught his father staring so lovingly at man that he had this thought. <laughs> I've never seen him look at the birds like that before. I've never seen him look at the trees like that before. There is something different about this man because I have never seen my dad look at anything like he looks at them. I believe Jesus saw the deep, longing look of love in his father every time his father looked at Adam and Eve. Now, I wonder if Jesus was watching that day when man was kicked out of the presence of God. And I just wonder, See, we read through this stuff, and we don't, even, we don't even ask questions. I wonder what that was like. 
I, I live to ask those kind of questions. I think we think God just kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden and went, serves you right. I don't think that's how it went. I think on the other side, on the inside of the fence line, the God of the universe was weeping at the separation between him and man. And I think Jesus saw how this was all going down. And I'm going to show you in the New Testament. I think he was so bothered by the separation between God and man that he refused not to do something about it. Let me show you in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, or the clean for the unclean. Why? That's the that, or the what. Here's the why. That he might bring us to God. Jesus was entirely motivated to do something about the separation between God and man. And I believe that no one was more bothered by this barrier than Jesus, and here's how you know, because he was the only one willing to do something about it. Jesus was bothered by the separation between you and God, and the reason he came to this earth was to do something about it. And that leads us to point number two. Jesus came as a serious buyer. Jesus came as a serious buyer. I know it's a different way to say this, but have you ever been shopping for something that you never intended to buy? Anybody ever done that before? You know, you just needed to get out and kind of shop, and you, you know you didn't have the money, and you weren't going to buy anything, but you just kind of wanted to feel like you were going to buy something, and so what, what do they call that? Window shopping, right? I remember one time, I, I, years ago, I was uh, buying my wife a really special purse, and so I went uh, into Scottsdale Fashion Park into this very expensive purse store, and I didn't really think through how I was dressed or how I was coming across. I was in like Saturday morning attire, not Saturday evening attire, which is work attire for me. And so I was like sweatpants, a ratty kind of sweatshirt, and I, I go into this expensive store. And the moment I walked in, I felt like I was getting judged. And sure enough, like I, I kind of felt, you know, just, I, I, I felt weird. Well, then they confirmed that I was weird by the way they talked to me. So a woman comes up, one of the staff members comes up to me and says, can I help you? Like with that tone. Now I'm about to drop what for me at 17 years old was like a year's worth of wages on this purse, okay? Now it's not that much money because at 17 I made 4.25 an hour before taxes, all right? So don't, don't get all out of control. Wow, Preston drops, no, no. Preston, it wasn't that much money, okay? But she says, excuse me, can I help you? And I said, oh, I'm looking for a purse for my wife. And she says, do you know which one? Really strongly. And I said, well, no, I'm just kind of getting a lay of the land. I want to see what you've got. She said, well, let me show you some. And she takes me over to the smallest handbags, okay? And she, she's judging me totally. Well, a couple minutes go by, and, and she's just kind of making these comments. And I said, isn't there another one of these stores at Biltmore Fashion Park? And she said, yes. I said, great, I'm gonna go buy my wife's purse at that one, and I walked out of the store. Just to kind of little, you know, send a little message. She didn't care. But here's the deal, here's what I learned. She thought that I was not a serious buyer, and so she didn't take me seriously, right? 
she could have made a commission off of me, but because she didn't take me seriously, because she assumed I wasn't a serious buyer, she missed out. Okay, here's what you need to understand about Jesus. Jesus didn't come to the earth to window shop. He didn't come to earth to walk around and go, I think I might buy her. I think I might buy him. Jesus came as a serious buyer, and I can prove it to you in Scripture. All right? Let me read this to you. If, you're, if you've got your notes, read this with me. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Speaking to believers, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. What kind of attitude did he have? Verse 6, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, Jesus gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Okay, here's what you need to understand about real love. You can tell just how real the love is by what someone gives up to be in love. Here's what Jesus gave up to come be in love with you, to come get you. He gave up all of his divine privileges as the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, sitting at the right hand of the Father, okay? You wouldn't give up your spot in line at Chipotle to come love me, okay? Jesus says, listen, I, I don't see equality with God as something to hold on to. I would give up all of this just to come be in love with you. Okay, I hope that doesn't just fly over your head. That is seriously romantic. And, and here's, here's, this is for the millennials, since I know we've got a good number of them. This one-liner is for you. There's no such thing as a spiritual internet, okay? There's no such thing as heavenly Amazon, okay? And here's the one-liner. Jesus couldn't get online and purchase you. He could only make this purchase in person. He had to come, setting aside all of his divine privileges in heaven as the one and only begotten Son of God. And he set all of that aside just to come and chase you in love. That leads us to point number three. Jesus came to deal with your sin. I love the sound of turning notes. That just makes my heart so happy. And can I tell you why? It just, just, it, here's why it's so important to take notes in church, because it makes a statement to the God of the universe. I know you're a speaking God, and I am ready to write whatever I hear you say. I just love that. It's, you're such an awesome church. Point number three, Jesus came to deal with your sin. Now, there are two things we need to uh, address as it relates to what Jesus came to do about your sin. Here's the first one. Jesus died to cover your sin, to cover your sin. First John chapter 2, verse 2. He, Jesus himself, is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. Now, this Greek word for sacrifice that atones for sin is the word hilosmos, hilosmos. And here's what it literally means. It kind of has a two-part meaning. It means to cover or pay for. It's where we get our word, it's a big theological word, propitiation, okay? And many uh, on the theological side of the spectrum, when they hear propitiation, only think about pay for. And yes, that's part of what it means. And you actually use this word every once in a while. When you go out to dinner and you're with friends and, and the server brings the check to the table 
and they reach for the bill, but you grab the bill, what is it we typically say? I got this, or don't worry about it, I've got it covered, okay? So you need to understand, a part of what Jesus came to do in dying for your sin is to pay the price or the penalty for your sin and mine, okay? But also, the other meaning for this word hilosmos is to put out of sight, to cause it to be hidden. Jesus died to cover your sin. Now, let me illustrate this. Uh, a, a while back, one of my kids uh, had a hiccup at school, and uh, they felt like the whole school knew what was going on, and they were very embarrassed to have to go back to school. And we were riding to school that morning, and I said, can you imagine going to school today and having to wear a white T-shirt with every mistake you made written all over it? And my child started crying and said, that's exactly how I feel. That I'm going to walk into school, it, it's going to be the walk of shame. Everybody knows what I've done, and that it's just going to be written all over me. And I felt the Lord, the Lord just speak something in that moment. And I said, if you ever ask yourself the question, why did Jesus have to bleed out to the point of death? Let me answer that question for you so that your entire t-shirt was covered in blood so that no one could read what was written on it. Can you imagine if you had to come to church every week or 1.5 times per month, which is what the stats say, you come to church. You had to wear a white t-shirt and on it is written every embarrassing sin you have ever committed you'd probably come to church less than 1.5 times per month if you had to, right? Jesus died to cover your sin, not just to pay for, but to put out of sight. If you're taking notes, write this one down. Jesus had to bleed out so that he could cover the entire body of my bad works. Now, you might be somebody here watching this online that says, well, God just wants to embarrass me with all the bad stuff I've done. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's why he sent Jesus to bleed out to the point of death, not to uncover all of the bad stuff you've done, but to actually cover with his own blood every sin you have ever committed or ever will commit. Explain to me how that's a bad thing. Explain to me how that's a mean God. He doesn't want to uncover everything you've done. He sent his son to die for you so that he could cover everything you've done. Listen, you've got friends in your life that talk behind, behind your back and uncover every little embarrassing thing you do and you don't even know it. And here Jesus is saying, oh, I'm not like that. Not only do I not talk about those embarrassing things that I know you've done, those sins you've committed, I died to cover them all up. Think about this. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is, is instituting the first communion. And he uses really romantic language that I think we just read right over. He takes the cup, and what does he say? He says, this 
is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for you. Poured, not trickled, not dribbled, poured. He takes his blood and dumps it out on every one of your sins. Jesus died to cover your sin. Here's the second half of this. Jesus died to take away your sin. This is awesome. It's not just to cover it. Because one, one might think, well, if it's covered, then if someone comes along and uncovers it, then everyone's going to know. Okay? Jesus goes even further with what he does with your sin. He died to take away your sin. Think about this for a minute. John the Baptist in John chapter 1 comes on the scene just before Jesus shows up. And, and I want to read to you the first things he says when he locks eyes with Jesus. Okay? Out of anything he could have said, listen to what John the Baptist says in John 1, 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away. Everybody say, takes away. Say it again, takes away. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. You were dead because of your sins. This is speaking of before Christ. And because your sinful nature was not yet cut away, then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Okay, I don't have a ton of time to walk through this, uh, and so I'm, we're going to have to take a high-level look at the Day of Atonement. But to really understand the beauty of what Jesus did at the cross, you have to go back many, 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 many years when God instituted the Day of Atonement. Now, Yom Kippur means day, Yom, and then Kippur means covering. In English, we say Day of Atonement, okay, which means to cover. And here's what would happen on the Day of Atonement. Interestingly enough, it was the one day of the year, and there was only one day in every year where someone could go into the manifest presence of God, the most holy place in the Holy of Holies, okay? Only one day a year and only one person per year, that one day, okay? And here's what they'd have to do. The high priest was the only one allowed to go in, and he would take two male goats, and they, there'd be a casting of lots, which for us would be like a flipping of the coin. Uh, and, and it was believed that God decided which goat was used for which purpose. Goat number one, after the casting of lots, was killed. Its blood was shed, and the high priest would take it in, put it on the altar. Okay? Goat number two was called Azazel. Az, A-Z, meaning goat. Azel, meaning to take away. All right? Here's what would happen with goat number two. The high priest on the Day of Atonement would take his hands and put them on the horns of this both had to be spotless male lambs. Okay? Goat number two, Azazel, the high priest would take his hands, lay them on the horns of Azazel, and would confess all the sins of the nation of Israel. And then here's what would happen. A, a trusted assistant to the high priest 
would take this male spotless goat out into the middle of the most barren, rocky place, surrounded by cliffs, so it would eventually either fall off or starve to death and die. And here was the reason, so that the goat would never find its way back into town with all the sins on it. So the goat would go out. Have you ever heard the term scapegoat? You ever heard that? Where do you think that comes from? Azazel. The goat that takes away. Now you want to see something romantic? Jesus came to be your scapegoat. The God of the universe put his hand on his one and only begotten son and placed all of the sins, not just yours and mine, but even if you're here and you don't believe in Jesus yet, your sin too, placed it on Jesus. Let me show it to you in the New Testament and in the Old. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24, he, Jesus, personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53, Messianic prophecy. Isaiah 53, verse 6, all of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord God laid on him, the Messiah, the sins of us all. Jesus died as your scapegoat. Now, you may be here watching this online thinking, well, how far did Jesus, my quote-unquote scapegoat, take my sin away from me? Great question. Because I know if you don't know Jesus yet personally, you're probably thinking, hey, I know what I've done, and at any point that goat could come back into my life and tell everybody all the embarrassing sins I've committed. Okay, let me show you what the Bible says is done with your sin because of what Jesus did on the cross. Psalm 103, verse 12. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. Jesus, our scapegoat, didn't just die to cover our sin. Listen to me closely. He died to take them so far away from you that if you tried to go find them, you couldn't. That is romantically amazing. Here's point number four. Jesus came to deal with your shame. Jesus came to deal with your shame. Now, I've got a, a kind of a run of one-liners here if you're taking notes, but before I do that, how many of us have ever been ashamed by something bad we have done? Okay, just put your hand up. Okay, look around. Everybody look around. Okay, keep your hands up. Hold them up high. Both campuses, if you're in a Starbucks, hold your hand up high. People will think you're weird. Okay, all of us, right? And anybody with their hand not up is a liar. We've all been ashamed. No matter how big 
or small it seemed to be, we've all experienced shame, and some of us far more than others. I remember when I was in, a junior in high school, uh, it was our junior-senior dance, and I had been selected as the MC, as a junior. And so I, it was my job to kind of, you know, I was the Jimmy Fallon of the Shady Grove Christian Academy junior-senior dance. Now, before you get too impressed by that little fact, I only had 26 kids in my junior class, okay? So it was slim pickings, you know what I'm saying? But I thought I was the stuff. So I was trying to, you know, I, I knew I was called at 13 to go into ministry, and so I saw this in pride as an opportunity to show everybody that night that I was the man and that I was going to do big things in the kingdom on big stages. What an idiot I was, okay? And so that night, I, I decided I was going to use a lot of big words, you know, because that's what you do when you're 17 to try and impress a bunch of adults is you use words they don't understand, right? Especially words you yourself don't understand, right? So we get to the end of the night, and I haven't really had any hiccups, and all I had to do to finish out the night was to introduce the headmaster of the school. And the headmaster was going to come up and pray and dismiss us, okay? Pretty simple stuff, right? I get up there, and I decide... I'm going to use a big theological word at 17, consecrate, okay? So I'm thinking in my head, I'm going to say the headmaster is going to come up and consecrate the night in prayer, all right? And here's what I said. We have one last thing on the agenda. The headmaster of the school is going to come up and secrete the night <laughs> in prayer. If you don't know what the word secrete means, let me let the cat out of the bag. It means bodily discharge, <laughs> they laughed a lot harder than you did. <laughs> it was more like that. And the shame, the blood left my face. Because people are looking at me laughing, whispering, and I'm thinking, oh my Lord. Of course, I go to school the next morning, and what is everyone saying? Well, before the school day starts, should we secrete this class in prayer? I heard it for a long time, and, and as silly as it sounds, I was humiliated. I felt incredible shame, not just that I used the wrong word, but that, that I was trying so hard to impress everybody and fell flat on my face, and the enemy used it to really mess with me about public speaking because I felt so much shame. Okay, here's what you need to understand. If you're taking notes, write these things down. Sin is a doing word. Sin is a doing word. In other words, I did that. I stole that. I lied about that. Sin is a doing word. Shame is a being word. Here's what shame sounds like. I am that. I am bad. I am unlovable because of what I've done. Sin is a doing word. Shame is a being word. One of the biggest ways Satan tries to keep you separated from God is shame. Now, here's the mantra, the dangerous mantra of shame. Nobody could love somebody who did that. That is the mantra of the spirit of shame. Nobody could love somebody who did 
that. Now, I want to show you, especially for those of you who don't yet know Jesus personally and what kind of a friend he is and don't know God as father and understand what an amazing father he is. You've probably been conditioned that God wants to shame you. He wants you to feel bad, okay? And I want to show you, shame was never God's plan. Ever. It was never, ever God's plan. I'll show it to you. If you're in Genesis 3, look in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, before Adam and Eve fall in sin. It says this, now the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Okay, think about this for a moment. Adam and Eve are walking around in the garden in the presence of the God of the universe, buck naked. I understand that might be normal for you on Saturday morning at your house. They were in the presence of God, walking around buck naked. So that we all understand what a big deal this is, I just wonder, out of curiosity, how many of us getting dressed for church today had the thought, you know what I feel like wearing? Nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Happy birthday to me and everybody sitting around me. <laughs> Nobody thought that. Why? Because that would be embarrassing, right? Okay, here's how pure the garden was before sin. They were walking around naked, and they felt zero shame. Then watch what happens the moment they sin. Genesis 3, verse 7. At that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame. At what? Not just at what they'd done, at who they were, at their nakedness. So what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Incidentally, one of the most exhausting works in life is to try and cover up that which you are ashamed of rather than letting Jesus cover it with his own blood. We've all tried it before, to hide the sin we are so ashamed of. Jesus came to die, not just for the sin, but to deal with your shame. Now, let's go back to the garden, kind of like I did at the beginning. And I just wonder, I wonder, Jesus watching this whole thing go down in the garden, I wonder if in that moment, as he was watching Adam and Eve sin, and then immediately the shame come upon them. I wonder how this sat, sat with him. I personally think he was furious. Now you might be thinking at what they did. No, I think he was furious about how they felt. The shame that was so overwhelming to them. And I can prove to you, I think he was furious curious about the shame they felt. Let me show you. In the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12, if you put a marker in Hebrews 10, you can read this with me in Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Despising the shame. 
Jesus despised the shame of the cross. Hanging there naked in front of everyone. Brutally beaten and bleeding out. The Bible says he despised the shame. What does it mean that Jesus despised the shame? Here's what I think it means. Jesus despises anything that would cause you to put your head down in shame as you go into the presence of your heavenly father. He is despised by that shame. Not by you, but by the shame you feel that would cause you to put your head down as you go into the presence of Almighty God. Now, you may be here and you've done some pretty rough stuff that you are very ashamed by. Listen to me closely. You're not the only one. There are many of us. And here's what you need to know. If that's you, I want you to write this one-liner down. You are not what you've done or what has been done to you. That's not who you are. That's just part of the story, but that is not the entire story. And I want to show you one of the things Jesus did with his blood in regards to your shame. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Let us go right into the presence of God. This is after salvation. We are now given access. You're going to see it in a minute. So now, any of us, not just the high priest, one day a year, we are given as believers in Jesus instant access to the presence of God. We need to go in with sincere hearts, fully trusting him for our guilty, our shame-filled consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. You know what this means? That if every morning of your life you, walk, you wake up in shame, it doesn't mean you're bad. It just means you need to pour a lot more of that blood all over what happened. Jesus bled out on the cross, not just to take care of your sin and to take it away, but to do something about that shame because he despises anything that makes you feel unworthy to the point that you would walk into the presence of your heavenly father with your head down. That leads us to the last point, point number five. Jesus restored personal access to the father. This was the entire point of what Jesus came to do to restore personal access between you and God. Leviticus 16, verse 30, talking about the Day of Atonement, one, on that day, offerings of purification will be made for you and you will be purified in the Lord's presence. The reason for the purification was to be in his presence. Now, when we talk about this, there is a way to know that you've gotten a clear revelation of all Jesus has done for you, okay? And it's very simple. And it comes down to how you go into the presence of God. 
all right? Let me show it to you. One more verse, and we'll wrap up. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. When you realize what Jesus did for you on that cross, here's how you know you really understand what he did. Every time, no matter what you've done, no matter how badly you've tripped up, every time you go into the presence of God, you hold your head high, you walk in with a little bit of holy swagger and go, Jesus died to cover and take away my sin. I have nothing to be ashamed of in the presence of my heavenly Father. Nothing. Not because you're good or I'm good, but because what Jesus did was that good. Jesus died to deal with your sin, to deal with your shame. He came to reestablish personal access to the God of the universe. As we talk about all of this, I want to help illustrate this so that you really understand how awesome it is what Jesus did for you personally on the cross, whether you've given your life to him yet or not. When Adam and Eve sinned, the earth, for all intents and purposes, became Satan's slave market. The Bible says that we're slaves to sin before Christ. In essence, the earth became Satan's slave market. Now, to really understand the beauty of what Jesus did, you, know, you need to understand what happened in a slave market in biblical times. The owner of the market would have purchased many slaves to auction off at a higher price than what he paid for each of them. And prospective buyers were allowed to come through the market and to interact with each of the slaves. I say interact but it was far more than just interaction. The owner of the market would allow prospective buyers to beat the slaves to see if they could handle the wear and tear of being under their rule. And what would happen if a prospective buyer liked a particular slave? As the auction would start, the slave would go up completely naked. There was nothing hidden Prospective buyers could check teeth, check for diseases. There was nothing hidden. It was ugly in front of everybody. They'd be beaten to a bloody pulp and then have to stand before everyone and be auctioned off. And whoever wanted the slave the most paid the highest price. Here's what you need to understand about what Jesus did for you. Because of sin, you and I were slaves. And Jesus left his seat next to the Father and all of the divine privileges that went with it. And he came to the earth in the form of a man. And he meandered through 
Satan's slave market, and he found you. Just before he walked up, you had been brutally beaten by a buyer who had no intent on purchasing you. Shoulders slumped, eyes on the ground. Jesus walks up and says, I really like you. And I don't like what's happening to you. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to do something about your situation. You, feeling like it seems too good to be true, don't even respond. Thinking he's about to beat you like all the other prospective buyers. He just wraps his arms around your brutally beaten back. And he cries. And he says, if you'll let me, I'll make this all stop. And just then, some hirelings for the owner of the slave market come in, grab you, drag you away, and set you on the pedestal. It's your time to be auctioned off. Satan, this entire time, has been watching the, the exchange between you and Jesus, and he's seeing dollar signs. Rarely does he see the look in a, in, a, in a buyer's eyes to want someone so badly as what he saw in Jesus. And he's seeing dollar signs. And he's thinking he is going to get rich off of this sale. And as Satan yells out to everybody in the market your name, before he can even say the price, Jesus raises his hand and says, I'm buying. I'll pay the price. And Satan says, I haven't even said the price. Jesus says, I don't want to buy her as a slave. I want to end her slavery. So I would like to take her place. Let her free and take me in her place. And Satan snapped at the opportunity. Immediately, you're released. And Jesus was put in chains, dragged away to be brutally beaten and murdered so that you could live free forever. How does hope grow? When you understand what Jesus did for you, it is impossible to be hopeless no matter how bad things get. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Have a great week.